we're going to begin this morning looking at the narrative in Luke that leads up to the birth of Christ. That comes in chapter 2, and we're going to read that come the Christmas Eve service that we'll be having here. But until then, I want us to take these passages that lead up to that. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1 and in verse 5 in just a moment. Each one of the stories we'll read about, each one of the hymns that are, that are recorded here for us, open up in a new way, a fuller way, a more blessed way, what God has done in Jesus Christ. And in this passage, we're going to see some remarkable things God did. In fact, things that he did for a couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, that go beyond the natural and involve the supernatural. It involves a miracle. And yet the whole setting of it has to do with what God's doing for all his people, and that is that God, through Jesus Christ, establishes a kingdom in which people can live a new kind of life, live in the power of the Spirit. There's so much here. We could, we could pause on almost every verse and preach a sermon right there, but we won't, I promise. I promise. But we are going to read through this passage starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division, division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Righteous in the sight of God. That's God saying, you are right with me. I look upon you as a faithful follower. They are observing the law. They are doing what God expects of them. So what you anticipate is for God's blessing to rest on their lives. And no doubt God's blessing was resting on their lives. But look in the very next verse. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now, when someone is unable to conceive in our day, we feel for them, but we don't think them in any way blameworthy, and, and we don't think it's a shameful thing, but actually in the first century in this culture, it was often viewed as just that. I don't want to exaggerate. The Jews understood that Sarah, their great ancestor, ancestress, she was unable to conceive, and only in her old age did God, by a miracle, allow her to conceive and give birth to Isaac. So they understood that you could be faithful to God and yet unable to have children. Nevertheless, there was this sense that God intended for a married couple to have children. If they didn't have children, something had gone wrong. And sometimes it was thought that the wife was somehow to blame, that she had sinned, that she had failed God somehow. Now, I suppose you should say that it could be the man, but you know how it is. You always blame the woman, right? Some of you ladies are like, yeah, yeah, it's always the woman's fault. So, it was natural for Zachariah and Elizabeth to wonder 
why it is they weren't having children. They were faithful to God. They could look around and see other people who were less faithful, who weren't obeying God's commands, at least not with such diligence, and they had children. What's wrong with us? Have we failed God somehow? At first, you imagine, they simply prayed about it. They asked God to bless them and anticipated that God would do that. After all, they were being faithful. And yet, months passed and then some years passed and still no children. So those questions kept coming back. And they wondered, have we been unfaithful? No, we haven't been. We've been serving God. So, so why is it that we're being left behind? I don't know that they got angry about it, but they might have. At least for a time, they may have felt like God was somehow letting them down. And so their faith was being tested. And it was tested year after year. And now we're told they have reached old age and they still haven't had children. The hope is a thing of the past. They've had to reconcile themselves to not having what they so much wanted. So there are a couple that we can empathize with and some of us can identify with because we have hopes, we have dreams, we have expectations, we look to the promises of God and we think that certain things are going to happen and they don't seem to happen and maybe they don't happen for a long, long time and our faith is tested as well. Well, here is this couple faithful to God, their faith being tested and then a momentous day comes. In verse 8, it says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was something done first in the morning before the first sacrifice and then in the afternoon after the last sacrifice. It was a great honor to be a priest who was allowed to offer this incense up to God. It says, when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. The Greek says fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John, meaning the Lord is gracious, or even the Lord is faithful. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow! Zechariah here is in the temple. He's given up on having children. He's an old man. He is offering the incense, and according to custom, he would have bowed down there having offered it. The most holy place is right before him. It's separated from where he stands by a curtain. 
except for the high priest on the Day of Atonement, no one on all the earth would be closer to the holiest place where God's glory dwelt than where Zechariah was at that moment. And he's praying. You may think when you read this that he's praying about a son, but surely not. Surely not. He's given up on having a son. And what's more, he's representing the people as a priest offering up incense. It's far more likely he was praying instead for the redemption of Israel. That's what the priests would pray at moments like that. Oh, God, be faithful to Israel. Redeem your people. Liberate your people. Perhaps he's thinking of Rome and their power that had oppressed Israel. Perhaps he's thinking of the, the other nations of the past centuries that had oppressed the people. And he's wondering, where is God's blessing for Israel? Perhaps all those things are going through his mind, but he's praying, almost certainly saying, God, redeem Israel. And an angel appears and says his prayer is answered, but it's answered in a way he couldn't have anticipated. It's answered through his son. His son. Well, he's way past expecting children. As a Jew, he knew the story. I mean, you had Abraham and Sarah, and God blessed Sarah with a son. He had to think, this is, this is incredible. This is, this is beyond belief. He realizes that he's entering into God's great plan of the ages, God's plan to send the Savior, the Messiah, and his son would go before Messiah to prepare the way. His son John, the Lord is gracious, would preach repentance to the people. He would preach repentance so that the people would be ready when Messiah came. They would respond to Messiah. At least that was the hope when he came and preached good news. And so this was an incredible moment for Zechariah. This, this promise, this unexpected promise being fulfilled, the promise to Israel, but also also, this incredible blessing to Zechariah and Elizabeth, this miraculous gift of a son. So naturally, naturally, he has some doubts about whether this is going to happen. At least he would like a sign. I can't say I blame him. He says right here in the next verse, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. He wants a sign. The angel gives him a sign. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And so he's unable to speak until, until John is born. And people want to know, what are you going to name this son? Elizabeth says, John. And they think, you can't name him John. There's nobody in your family named John. They ask him. He writes it out. His name is John. And then, filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks. And what does he speak? Words of praise. Words of praise. Joyful words of praise. 
because of what God has done. Meanwhile, it says, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. What is he doing in there? I mean, how long does it take to offer incense? You know, you're in the holy place. God is present. You do something wrong. Who knows what might happen? They're beginning to wonder what's happened to Zechariah. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. I'm laughing because I'm trying to envision how he makes a sign to convey that an angel just appeared to him. What exactly do you do? What gestures do you make? Do angels have wings? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> what? How does he convey through sides? So I guess he's just, you know, he's just like me. He's moving his hands all over the place. But he can't talk. But they obviously know something incredible has happened, and he fulfills his term. His group, this group of Abijah, it was one group of 24 priests. They had so, 24 groups of priests. They had so many priests that they couldn't all serve at one time, so they would serve for a week at a time, twice a year. So he finishes out his week, and it says in verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Somehow she had been reconciled to the fact that they would not have children. But now that she is having a child, she just says it. God has taken away my disgrace. There was always that, that like a low-level fever, there was always that sense that somehow she had been shamed by her childish, childishness. I keep saying childishness, childlessness. And so when she actually became pregnant, she didn't want to see anybody. At least she didn't want to see anybody until they could see that she was great with child. So she hid for five months. Next time somebody saw her, they were going to know that God had visited her, that God had blessed her. And so she celebrates, and of course, as we'll see later on in this chapter, others celebrated with her. But it's interesting as you read through this passage how God was testing the faith of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And frankly, he's testing the faith of Israel. Israel had gone for centuries without a prophet, at least a major prophet, speaking on behalf of God. They were oppressed under one people after another, one power after another, and still God was seemingly silent. So they're supposed to be God's people, and God has made great promises to them, and yet it doesn't seem as if promises have been fulfilled. God was silent, but now God was speaking again, and God was working again. And God was preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. It didn't look like he was working out his purposes, but he was. And he was fulfilling them now. Israel's faith had gone through a test. And they would find the Savior was on his way. But equally, Zechariah and Elizabeth, in many ways much like their own people, 
They, they, they had a promise, or at, at least the promise of blessing, that didn't seem to be fulfilled. And so their faith was also being tested. And ever since then, believers in God have been through that very same experience. Everybody here at one time or another, if you're a Christian, you have been tested. Your faith has been tested. That's the way it is with followers of God. There will be times when what you expect to happen won't happen. What you hope to happen won't happen. The promise of God seems not to be fulfilled. Your prayers, they don't seem to get to God's throne room. God is silent. And you wonder, what's wrong? You pray and pray and you start wondering, have I somehow disappointed God? Is it somehow something I've done? Have I sinned? After a while, you realize that there's nothing I can find in my life. I'm not perfect, but neither is anyone else, and they seem to be doing just fine. Your faith is being tested. You might find yourself getting hard toward God, angry with God. You might start feeling like God is your problem. After all, He could intervene and do something today if He wanted to, and He hasn't done it. And so there grows a distance between you and God. Or perhaps you've more or less reconciled yourself to it, but still there's this sense of maybe disgrace or disappointment or something that holds on to your life. That is a test of your faith. And everybody goes through it. Keep in mind, though, it's a test of our faith. It's not a test of God. Strictly speaking, God isn't under any requirements. And God isn't on trial. God is God, and we are the ones who are being tested. The question isn't whether God will be faithful, it's whether we'll remain faithful. You know, it's interesting, Jesus brings this out in one of his parables. He talks about persistence in prayer, and he talks about a widow who keeps coming before a judge wanting justice. And this judge, he doesn't care about justice, and he doesn't care about this widow, and he doesn't want to mess with her, but she won't stop coming. It's like She's so determined to make his life miserable until he does what she wants that he decides, you know what, I'll give her what she wants. And so Jesus uses that as a picture of persistence. And he says, listen, look how the unjust judge finally gives way when you're persistent in faith. He says, how much more will the Father respond when you ask him? And he'll respond quickly. But... And this is how he ends the parable. He turns the tables. This is the point I want to get to. He says, he'll see that you get justice and quickly, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, God will be faithful. The question is, will we be faithful? God will always, always come through. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is faithful. Always he'll come through. The question is, will we keep faith? Or will we say, you know what, I tried it, doesn't work, and try something else? Or get angry. I've known people who've done that. Yeah, 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 I've tried God. And when I asked God to do this, he didn't do anything. I'm over that. And in anger, leave the church. And, and just swear off faith in God. I've seen people do all kinds of things. You have too. I've been tempted to do all kinds of things. Our faith gets 
tested. But folks, that's the nature of Christian discipleship. Your faith will be tested. Your faith will be tested. And the scripture says this everywhere. In fact, I just, I really want to conclude the sermon by looking at a couple of scriptures that say this. They're very familiar scriptures. I'd like you to turn with me if you would. The first one is James chapter 1. If you've been a Christian any length of time at all, you'll know this scripture, but I want you to look at it with me because it drives the point home so clearly. Our faith gets tested. And James says, chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It produces perseverance because you really don't have much choice. Your faith is being tested, and if you're going to stay in faith, it means you have to wait and wait and wait until God shows himself uh, faithful. So the testing of your faith requires perseverance. It produces perseverance by just drawing it out of you, demanding it of you. But look what James says about that. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, that test is drawing perseverance out of you. Stick with it. Continue to persevere in faith. Don't give up on it. Stay with it. Because in the process, you will grow mature. You'll grow stronger. You'll become a fuller, stronger, more virtuous person. You'll be more the person you want to be. God has his own purposes that he's working out. And among others, it's to make you better. And so James says, count it all joy. Then look over in 1 Peter chapter 1. Another marvelous passage here. Peter talks about the inheritance we have kept for us in heaven. And you know, when your faith is being tested, it's good to remind yourself you do have an inheritance in heaven. Whether you get what you want in this life or not, there is blessing ahead. It's very important to remember that. So he says, I'm reading in the middle of verse 4, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God's at work in your life. Now, it may be for a little while, understood by God's timetable, right? His little while. For us, it seems like forever. But it may be for a little while you've had to suffer various trials, but that's the testing of your faith. 
that proves your faith is genuine and even purifies it through the trial. The scripture continually tells us our faith will be tested. So if your faith is being tested today, listen, it's nothing unusual. And what you're called to do is to persevere and to keep trusting and to know that God is working in your life. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were being tested. And what's interesting to me about that is their test was part of the blessing. In other words, it was, it was God's intention to send forth John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. He would do so in the power of the Spirit. No one was greater than John the Baptist, said Jesus. No one leading up to the coming of the kingdom had a ministry like his. He's preparing the way for the Lord. But we had to wait. God was waiting for the perfect time of his birth. And he had chosen Zechariah and Elizabeth to be the parents of John. But in order to do so, they needed to wait and wait and wait. And they had to wait in part because God intended John's birth to be obviously an act of grace. Not just a normal birth, but one marked out by God's sovereign purpose to establish his kingdom. He wanted it marked out so everybody would see that this John was no ordinary child, but he was going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah before the Messiah. And so it was necessary for Zechariah and Elizabeth to wait and wait and wait. Part of the blessing was in the waiting. And all this time they're wondering, did we do something wrong? Why has God overlooked us? It doesn't say they thought that, but surely they did. I would, wouldn't you? All the time that they're wondering about that, they were already chosen for this blessing. God's already working it out. He already has a plan. So how about you and me? Do you think that when our faith is being tested, that during that time when we're, we're wondering, has God forgotten us? Is it possible God has already chosen good things for us? What we have to do is continue to persevere and persevere until the purpose of God is fulfilled. That's really what we're called to do. There's no escape from that. That's what we're all called to do. So whatever you're facing, if you're facing something, don't think it's some strange thing that you're going through. All of us have our faith tested. But God won't fail. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we Look toward the, that day when we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We thank you for this word that reminds us that there are times that we have to wait. The world had to wait before the Savior was born. Zechariah and Elizabeth had to wait before their son, who would be the precursor of Messiah, before he was born. And we have to wait sometimes before the blessing you intend for us is birthed into this world. Forgive us, Lord, for 
allowing discouragement to take over, for getting angry, for throwing up our hands and giving up as if we should ever give up on you. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful through it all, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.